If you were here about a month ago when I had last taught, um, I did a topical sermon on the subject of revival. And we sort of looked at what is revival biblically and what is not revival. And I, I went through a few different passages just to look at the different types of circumstances that accompany revival among God's people throughout redemptive history. And I'll, I'll give a basic definition again of revival. Uh, revival, when we talk about it, is the recovery of spiritual life when there has been spiritual decay in a preceding decline among God's people. A revival is a recovery of spiritual life when there has been spiritual decay in a preceding decline among God's people. The fact that God's people need to be revived assumes that they could fall into spiritual slumber. And both Scripture and church history attest to the fact that God delights to move at different times in revival. He's always reviving His individual saints, but sometimes, to put His glory on display, He will revive multiple people at one time, usually in a similar region. And in the last sermon, I covered uh, what were some of the external circumstances that God uses to providentially usher in revival. And they didn't all look the same. Uh, We saw that at at certain times, for example, God uses the positive influence of His people for other uh, generations. Sometimes it's done that way. At other times, God needs to wake His people up to spiritual life by sobering them through judgment upon their nation. And we saw that with the example of the Exodus and Egypt and the people being revived. We also saw that God also brings revival through the chastisement of His own people. That sometimes the severity of God as a father upon His people wakes them up to new spiritual life. Uh, These are all uh, external providential circumstances that lead to revival. And what I want to do today is look at the internal characteristics of revival among God's people. Uh, In other words, what does God do within His people's hearts when He awakens them to new life? What is it that does the reviving? Well, the ultimate answer, of course, is that it is a work of the Holy Spirit of God in the soul that does the reviving. It's a work of the Spirit. But we need to be more specific than that because there are many people in the name of revival that are claiming they have a work of the Holy Spirit. And it it seems more subjective and experiential. Everyone claims the Spirit is moving in a place. How do we know it is a real move of the Holy Spirit? Well, we need to be more specific. Uh, We need to look at the practical means that the Spirit uses to bring revival in spiritual life. Uh, What theologians call the ordinary means of grace. And I want to submit that what Scripture lays out and church history is that Genuine revival is accompanied by the means of divine revelation through the expounding of God's Word. Uh, That wherever you see revival happening, God's Word is being proclaimed. 
And the revival I've selected for us to look at today took place at a, at a pivotal time in the history of Israel, as, as Richard laid out. Uh, during what has been called the, the renewal era, era following the exile. Having returned from Babylonian captivity and begin the, beginning the process of rebuilding the temple in the city of Jerusalem, uh, God used the expounding of the Word through Ezra to revive His people to new life and zeal. What's interesting about this account in Nehemiah 8 is that it's sort of a combination of all those providential outside factors we considered last time. Uh, there's the influence of a faithful remnant through Ezra and Nehemiah and some of the prophets such as Haggai and Zechariah. There's the historical backdrop of God's judgment upon Babylon when they were conquered through Medo-Persia. And of course, this, this whole exile has been a major chastisement upon the people of God. They're at a point where they're ready for God to speak. He's gotten their attention. In our context here in Nehemiah 8, the people of Israel have been returning in waves to Jerusalem. And it's, it's really a new exodus in their history. It's a time of covenant renewal. And just as a reminder, lest we think that, again, there's some kind of formula here to manufacture revival, which is what people try to do at times, uh, this is not a if-then. If I do this, revival will come. Uh, I want to remind us how Israel got here. Um, the preaching of the Word does not guarantee revival. The prophets were often rejected for their faithful preaching. Jesus was, of course, rejected for proclaiming the truth. The apostles and many throughout the history of the church have endured persecution on account of the Word. Revival is a sovereign work of God, and it happens according to His timing. He chooses the interrupted blessings that come in history. And what I want to do in our passage is sort of give a case study for what that looks like at this event when God revives His people through the Word. We want to see a time of revival. This is relevant to every generation of God's people. Churches across our nation and really in the West are in such desperate need of an awakening. On many levels. Uh, churches in our land have become so influenced by the world's ideas rather than the Word. Churches need to be revived by a restoring of the Word as central in the service. It, churches need greater faithfulness to the Christ of Scripture and His will. Greater purity in commitment to holiness. Greater discernment and sound doctrine. Churches need greater boldness in their witness to a lost world instead of trying to keep in with the world. A question at the outset, uh, do you ever pray with faith for God to revive churches in these ways? Do you ever ask big things of God? Do you ever visualize what it might look like if many churches across the land heeded the Word of God? 
and became set ablaze for his will. I've been challenging myself with that question. I think many times we don't pray for this and we don't visualize it because deep down in our hearts we've sort of settled the matter. It's it's not going to happen. I've seen what's out there. I've seen the culture. I see this generation that's coming up. There's no big revival coming. Jesus is just coming tomorrow and that's it. Tempting to think that way. The truth of the matter is that God is in the business of doing revival, and He's also in the business of surprising us. He has poured out His Spirit at many times in history when it seemed to be the most unlikely and darkest hour. His Word is preserved and alive and powerful in every age. And it is His pleasure throughout different points of history to move in mighty ways through its proclamation. Especially when people aren't expecting it. Because He gets the glory. And when people don't expect it, He raises up preachers who will proclaim it. And He prepares a people who will hear and receive it. This is revival. Let's look at the various ways that God uses His Word to revive His people. I'm going to just, instead of necessarily taking apart every part of this passage, I'm just going to draw out some of the different ways God uses His Word in revival. I'm going to jump straight into Nehemiah chapter 8. So turn with me to verse 1 as we look at this wonderful case study. Verse 1 of Nehemiah 8. And all the people... This is talking of Israel. All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. The first point I want to note about this revival that's about to happen is that God first gives a hunger for His Word. The first point I have is God gives a hunger for the Word. I don't have a very fancy PowerPoint. I'm just going to put the points point by point up there as we kind of go through it. When God revives, He prepares His people's hearts. Remember that up until this point, the younger generation who went into exile in Babylon in the, the kingdom of Judah... They're now older in their years. It's, it's 70 years later. And the exile was a, a humbling, soul-searching experience. The older generation had decades to ponder their guilt before the Lord. What they had done. Whose covenant under Moses they violated. How they had rejected so many warnings from the prophets. And now they would consider the emptiness of the idols they worshipped. And God's people have to be brought to that place if they're to receive the Word. If they're to be hungry. They have to see the futility of all they gave honor to. All that they gave preference to. And of course, this generation would have taught their children, the new generation that also came in the waves. And now the hour has come where God is opening their hearts. 
one theme that happens throughout Ezra and Nehemiah that is a, a phrase I like is that the hand of God was moving when the king issues the decree, when the people are getting stirred up. It says God's hand is always moving. He's arranging this time. And this is the beginning of revival. When God's people are humbled and are dissatisfied. They're dissatisfied with their idols. They're dissatisfied with all that they thought was true. They're dissatisfied with their own righteousness. That's where people have to be. That's where churches have to be. Dissatisfied with all the arm of the flesh in this world. And it says in verse 1 that the people gathered as one man. That is, for one purpose. They're all on the same page here. They show up as one man. And it's a good indicator that a revival is about to take place because it shows that the people are in a unified, widespread receiving. As John Piper says, revival is just God doing among many believers what He's doing all the time in individual believers. I'll say that one more time. Revival is just God doing among many believers what He's doing all the time in individual believers. Like I said earlier, God is always reviving individuals. Our Christian walk falls into ruts. We fall into spiritual slumber. We have up and down experience in our sanctification. We, we have seasons of apathy and, and seasons of backsliding. We lose zeal. But then the Lord over and over and over stirs us up again and revives us. Sometimes through chastisement. Sometimes through fellowship. Oftentimes through preaching and through His Word. And these are times when God is reviving us. And there are times when God decides to do that collectively with a large group of His people in the same region at the same time. That's what's transpiring in our text. They're gathered together as one man. And they're hungry for God's Word together. And notice it says they gathered. Which, by the way, means they're exactly where they should be if they're going to get ready for truth. They're in the assembly of God's people. Uh, one principle we could draw out from that is that if a work of the Spirit is going to happen in our time, we know it's going to happen where God's people are. It's going to happen within the assembly of the saints. It's not going to be some isolated affair. It's going to happen within the local churches because that's His appointed means. He has ordained that His people be nourished and grow in holiness in connection to the accountability and the fellowship of the church. We don't rely on human institutions or isolated rogue movements for revival. We don't rely on conferences. We don't rely on crusades. We don't rely on the arm of the government or political parties for a move of God. History has shown, even in our early stages of our country in the Great Awakening, in times of revival, 
These are often seasons where local churches are returning to their first love. It's often happening in the pews. These are times when churches are starting to heed with sobriety the words of God. And God raises up preaching. And churches are stirred toward more zeal and more activity. There's seasons of more spiritual growth. More separation from the world. More efforts toward discipleship. More prayer meetings. More efforts at evangelism. These things often characterize revival in local churches. And it begins with the assembling of God's people like we see in our text. And note what the people want from Ezra as they're hungry for the Word. They say, bring the book. Bring the book. I think that is the greatest thing any congregation can ever ask for. I may dare even to say a congregation should demand it. Bring the book. Give us the Bible. Not what we want to hear. Not fun stories. Not inspirational pep talks to make our lives feel better. Just give it straight. Give it us the Scriptures. Plainly give us the revealed words of God. Such a desire on the part of hearers in a church is a gift from the Lord. This is what we pray for in our church. And it's what we should be longing for to see in many churches. That God would give a greater longing for the pure milk of the Word. For growth doesn't happen otherwise. And so uh, the first component we see in a revival is a hunger for the Word and God has prepared His people through many circumstances to get to that point. And I want to consider a second related component. I'm going to temporarily skip a few verses and go down to verse 5 to note something else about the hearers. And then I'm going to circle back to Ezra the speaker in verse 3. Look down at verse 5. It gives more insight into the hearts of those who are hearing. Let me read the verse. It says, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. Now we see here that there is reverence for the Word. God brings reverence for His Word. Hunger for the Word and reverence for the Word. Uh, As Ezra opened the book, it's noteworthy uh, that at this pulpit they made for him, the people stood up when he opened the book. Now, I I don't think we're supposed to take away the gesture as the application necessarily. Um, it's a nice thing to practice, perhaps. I know churches that do it. Uh, I don't think we're bound to any particular gesture in our liturgy as we hear the Word. We don't have to stand. But it's noteworthy to look at the spirit of it. To think about where their hearts were at when this happened. It shows us what was in their hearts. When God prepares people for the Word, It is not merely an intellectual pursuit. 
It's not just human fascination. It's not just for head knowledge. It's not even just curiosity. There is a reverence that marks God's people because they have such a profound awareness that God is speaking. And that's a work of the Spirit in the heart. He has to cause a heart to believe by faith that God speaks in His Word. It's not just a reverence for a nice moral piece of literature. It's a personal reverence for the God they want to hear from. This is what all of God's people need if there is to be revival. There are so many other sources that believers revere in our day. All kinds of ones that we revere as authorities. Ideas of the culture are very influential on churches. Experts in fields. Social commentators. So-called influencers. Church growth strategists. And the list goes on. Uh, What we need in our culture, in our land, is what we see in our text. Churches in America need to return to a supreme reverence for the authority and the sufficiency of the Word of God without reservation. A.W. Tozer said, Revival happens when a good percentage of people in the church decide to swallow the book and let it have its, have its effect on their lives, come what may. So God prepares the way for revival by putting in His people's hearts a hunger for the Word and a reverence to receive it as the Word of God. He prepares the hearts of His hearers, and as we'll see next, He prepares His speakers. Let's go back to verses 2 and 3 and look at the speaker that God raises up. Verse 2. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. Verse 3. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. We see next here the staple of any true revival, and that is the proclamation of the Word. The proclamation of the Word. God had prepared the hearers for this hour. And He prepared a man for the hour. Up until this point, Ezra the priest has been studying the Scriptures for many years. He'd actually come earlier to the land in an earlier wave. And in Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, it says that Ezra set his heart to the study and the teaching and the practice of the law of the Lord. And so up until this point, he is the most knowledgeable man in Israel. He is the man for the hour. He's been in God's special seminary training, so to speak. God's been preparing him to study and internalize the Word. 
And Ezra is God's appointed means to expound the word in silence without everyone really knowing what God is getting ready to do. And specifically, he's an expert in the words of the law, otherwise known as the Pentateuch, the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy, the book of the covenant of Moses. This is what they violated in the Mosaic covenant. And this is what is going to be renewed as they hear it. And note that he reads it straight through for hours. From early morning to midday. This might be like six hours of reading. Specifically the words of the law. This was a practice already at the Feast of Tabernacles, which is what the seventh month here is in the passage. Note that everyone is assembled here who can understand. It's not just the heads of households. It's the men and the women and all who can understand. And with thousands gathered, hungry for the Word, it says in verse 3, he simply read from it. Uh, Bible scholars note that these words that he read from it uh, do not communicate a monotone reading. Uh, This word read in the Hebrew, from what I've read, uh, actually means to cry out or even to roar. It's the same word that's actually used in Jonah when it says that Jonah cried out, 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. And the idea is that as Ezra is reading the Scripture, he's crying out the Scripture. He's impassioned as he reads. And it says the people were attentive. And that's saying more than just that they were really good listeners. That they could hold still. The idea is that they were riveted by this reading. They're engaged. Their hearts are being touched. The reading gave off both light and heat. And it's interesting throughout history that God always does this. He prepares speakers who are dynamic in their personalities and their gifting to not just communicate truths like a scholar, but they're preachers and heralds. They get in people's faces. God has always been in the business of raising up such teachers to deliver His truth. He not only trains their minds to communicate, but empowers them to impress it on hearts and consciences. Now having said that, this is where we can also become top-heavy in the direction of passionate zeal. Uh, Make no mistake that passion has to be accompanied with the Word. He's crying out the Word. Passion and excitement without the Bible is just empty emotionalism. What churches need desperately, as in all times, is the bold, passionate expounding of the Bible. Because that's where the life is. Having reverence to receive the proclamation of the Word which is a posture of the heart, what we'll see next is the expression of the people's hearts. Look at verse 6. We now look at both preacher and hearer. And Ezra blessed the Lord 
the great God. And all the people answered, Amen! Amen! Lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. This leads to the next thing that God brings in a genuine revival. And it is worship based on the Word. Worship based on the Word. It's not just for the mind. This is the heart of what God wants. Uh, Jesus said in John 4 to the Samaritan woman that His people must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And this is important. Worship must be based upon God's truth. It's noteworthy that both the preacher and the hearers are sort of exalting God in light of this study. It says Ezra blessed the Lord God, which shows that he was leading by example and directing the people how to respond to the book of the law. What is the appropriate response to these words? It's worship. And the people are not just imitating Him like parrots. They respond of their own accord with hearty amens. And it says they bowed down low. There's a, a noteworthy thing here that's happening in the Old Testament. Um, there's, there's language here like they're bowing to a king, and it's supposed to make you think as the reader where Israel is at in their history. Uh, remember that they are past the days of monarchy. <clears throat> They've gone through exile, and Israel is without a king. And as they've heard the words from beginning to end, Genesis through Deuteronomy, they respond in a coronation-type fashion by bowing down on the ground. What's happening here is they're acknowledging who the true king is. I think what's happening here is, is more than just formalism and liturgy. I think Ezra, as well as all the people, just can't contain themselves in giving God glory. Because as the Word was proclaimed, they're in awe of this glorious King who has delivered them. I mean, just think about what they've heard from the beginning of Genesis all the way to the end of Deuteronomy. They've heard about the One who created them. The One who's been leading them. The One who delivered them. The One who preserved them, even as He was punishing them. They read about the One who sits enthroned above them. The One who was enthroned above all the kings of their past. The One who was enthroned above Babylon. Above Persia. Above all. Again, uh, this meeting was a personal meeting with the God who was speaking to them. And they collectively express this reverence as they respond to this God. It's a reminder that revival is not just a, a one-way communication where people just hear messages and learn something. Something happens in the soul that's new life. 
Times of revival are times when there is increased prayer and worship reflected back to the God who speaks. Leonard Ravenhill, who writes a lot about revival, once said this, A man may study because his brain is hungry for Bible knowledge, but he prays because his soul is hungry for God. The people in our passage have a renewed view of God. And they respond in worship. They must. And this is what we need. It's a reminder not just for whole churches, but a reminder for you and I in our daily lives as we sit before the Word in our private devotions, as we go to church and hear the Word. We need to encounter this majestic and awesome God on the pages of the Word. We need our minds and our emotions and our whole inner being to be renewed to see His greatness. It has a healing effect, a restorative effect, a reviving. A high view of God will give proper perspective to everything else in our lives for how small they really are. We make a lot of things really big. A high view of God will give proper perspective to our trials, to our temptations, to all the details of life. Nothing is really that big when you're with this God, when you see that He is King. And God's people need to go to the Word and regularly meet with the God behind the flat pages. And that's what's happening in this time. And continuing in our text, we see another important element of this revival that God is doing. Uh, Having put a hunger and a reverence in the hearts for the Word, in the proclamation of the Word, having restored worship based on the Word, another element is mentioned as important. The end of verse 7 says this, the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. What we see here is that God brought learning the Word. Learning of the Word. I think it's an important point to be added Because if we left this at just the mere proclamation of the Word and a worship service, we might isolate this revival just to one single event. And we might decide that all revivals are just some big event that takes place. But that's a limited view of revival. It was important that the people not only hear it powerfully recited, but there needed to be follow-up to understand it. The people needed to become learners. In other words, disciples. Discipleship is what God is after when He brings a revival. And that is more in the long term. It says that it wasn't just Ezra speaking. There were Levites who were going around helping the people to understand the law. And they gave the sense, it says. 
In one way, they were probably translating because many had learned Aramaic in the time of exile. In another great sense, they were helping them understand the meaning of the text. They were meeting the people where they were at. This is pastoral. This is important because we need to remember that great movements of God are not confined to one single instance. And it's not always instant. There's no spiritual lightning bolt that just makes everyone understand God's truth because someone preached really powerfully. There's no experience that all of a sudden gets everyone all of a sudden spiritually alive. It's a process. It takes time. It takes work. It takes discipleship. It takes nurture. Christian maturity takes time. And this is one of the errors in identifying revivals on the fanatical side is that oftentimes we look in history and we tend to lose sight of how much of a process they really were. And we try to manufacture it. We try to make it some instant thing. But genuine revivals are usually a lot more complex and a little longer than that. It's been said, I don't know who said it, but it's pretty good. I like this saying, it's been said that reading history can give the impression that things happen quickly. But living history can feel like it's moving at a snail's pace. That's because great change and great movements happen over a long course of time if it's going to have any lasting meaning. Take the Reformation, for example. If you were to look in a history book, you see it in maybe a few paragraphs, and you might think that perhaps the Reformation era, one of the, the greatest revolutions that took place on the continent of Europe, that it all happened and swept across the continent in, you know, just a matter of days or months or years. That there was just preaching and all of a sudden everyone was on fire returning to the Scriptures and developing doctrines and making confessions. That's not how it happened at all. Uh, In reality, the revival of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, it was much more gradual. And when you study it more in depth, you see that it was really an up and down process, even with setbacks at times. Very up and down in its progress. One might even say it was quiet at times. Translations of the Bible took time. Educating the masses, especially the illiterate, took a lot of time. Preachers studying and developing their doctrine took time. And then training other preachers took more time. Churches reforming took time. Uh, It's a reminder that in our yearning for revival, we need to be patient and we shouldn't seek out some dramatic turning point in order to conclude a revival is happening. But rather, if we're going to take a lesson from history, uh, we need to see that God's Word gradually is reforming and doing its work for lasting foundations. Here's the thought. And it's a thought that not only I've had, I've read this from others. Here's a thought about revival. It could be that there is a lot of revival happening in our society 
and we don't even realize the hand of God moving through it. Now, I know the prevalence of worldliness in the churches and apathy, but do we really have tabs on every local church in every area and region going on throughout the land? Do we know what the inner workings of what God is doing throughout the world? Can we just blanketly say that there is no revival happening and everything is darkness and slumber? I mean, if I thought about it, there's actually a lot of exciting things happening in the kingdom right now. This is an exciting time to be a part of the kingdom. It's a very unique time. There is more access to the Word and the Scriptures than ever before. There's more access and formulations of sound theology than any other generation. Even among young people. There are so many people, pastors and lay people, going to conferences to learn the Word. There are large church ministries that are solid ministries growing. There's so many solid books and materials to talk about various doctrines and principles in the Christian life for men and for women and for children. There's also a great movement in our day of Christian parents who are educating their children. A whole homeschool movement and other things has been happening. The state of things may seem stagnant now, But God is moving. And we may want to see a larger scale of revival, but that doesn't mean there is no revivals happening. For all we know, some future church historian might write about our time as an action-packed narrative where God was moving a lot. So we just need to have that perspective. And we need to focus on where we're, we're at. Not busy looking for the sensational everywhere we want to look. We need to make sure we're deeply rooted. We need to see to it that we're in the Scriptures and that we're alive. For one thing, we need to do this because we need to properly know God. And secondly, once we know God, we need to know ourselves in relation to Him. We need genuine revival. And this leads to the next point. We're getting closer to the end here. About genuine revival. We saw the people's worship of God in light of the Word. Now notice what happens when they examine themselves in light of the Word. So the Word brought to light who God is and they worship. It also brings the knowledge of themselves. Look at verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor... And Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. This is another component that gets missed a lot. A true, genuine revival brings repentance in response to the Word. Repentance in response to the Word. It says that a lot of people were weeping, sobbing, 
when they heard the word of the law. In fact, they're, they're, they're crying so much, they have to be told to stop mourning for the occasion. Uh, imagine weeping so much, they have to be told to stop. But the weeping is fitting. Spurgeon said, there are no dry-eyed revivals. We know why they're mourning. Why are they mourning? What is there to mourn? Well, the implication seems clear that they had godly sorrow welling up in their hearts because they saw more than they've ever seen how grievous it was that they broke this law. They didn't just kind of break the law. They didn't just break a good part of the law, some of it. They broke the whole law and they did it with defiance, with audacity. And God's Word, like a mirror, has shown them who they've been. This is mourning over their many sins. They must have mourned for their past sins that brought them into exile. Their breaking of all the commandments. And if you look through the Kings and the Chronicles, you can see that they really did break everything. They had disregarded everything handed down to them from Moses. They had totally disregarded the prophets. They would see right now how they had grieved the God who loved them. Remember that they're reading about this God who made them and led them and cared for them and gave them the law out of His love and made covenants with them. And when you see the goodness and the holiness and the love of God so clearly, it just magnifies that you would ever sin against this One. And they're grieving the God who loved them. That was their past sin. Surely it wasn't just their past sins though. That would be enough for weeping. But undoubtedly, I think they're mourning over their present sins that they still have. Maybe even sins they thought they were over. Okay, we went through exile. We're cleaned up now. Let's hear the law. And then they hear it. And they are still a mess. The mirror of God's Word exposed them for who they were. Because God is speaking. When God's people were in exile... Uh, they must have lost sight of just how worldly they had become. I mean, isn't that true for exiles? You're living in another land. You're with other people. The ideas are shaping your perception of things. They're probably more worldly than they realized. Perhaps they had become more influenced by Babylon than they thought. And it's really just like us as spiritual exiles in our land. In our society, it's very subtle how we adopt the culture's thoughts and attitudes. And we have these blind spots at times. The world so easily shapes what shocks us or what enchants us. And God's people can lose sobriety and become lax in the pursuit of holiness. And when God brings revival, when He brings the Word, 
It is sharper than a two-edged sword, and it cuts past the surface down to the core, and His Word exposes His people. Steve Lawson, who's really good at looking at a lot of church history and a great preacher, Steve Lawson says this, quote, Every great, every great awakening has always been accompanied by deep conviction of sin. The Word of God is proclaimed and hearts are cut to the core. Souls are laid bare before God. Sin that has long been suppressed is now suddenly exposed and consciences are smitten. And in that heart-rending experience, in the day of God's visitation, sin is confessed and repentance runs deep and Jesus is embraced and the soul is cleansed and forgiveness is received. End quote. That's true. When you look at any revival through history, it's often accompanied by this weeping, by this grief before there is joy. And this is one of the important staples of revival that often gets dismissed or disregarded by those who are just seeking a sensational experience for sensation's sake. When you're just trying to manufacture a revival because you just want to see more excitement, many would be shocked in asking for revival if they actually got one. Excitement and emotions are good things, even fitting things in light of God. But there is a glaring problem if God's people who have been in a spiritual slumber and decline come in contact with God and He wakes them up and there's just no penitence. No conviction. No resolve toward greater obedience. We should be suspect of any so-called revival if there's no turning point in the heart. No poverty of spirit. No mourning over sin. Repentance is what we need. Repentance is what Jesus called for when He talks to the churches in Revelation. Repent, or I'll take your lampstand. This is what we should be praying for in our midst and for ourselves. This is what we see in the Israelites in our passage as they understand the Scripture. And isn't it interesting that as they understand the law more, they understand their sin more. It reminds me of what Paul says in Romans. With the knowledge of the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law of God revealed their sin. And they're seeing their blemishes. And they're seeing them as God sees them. And it's appalling. And they're awakened. Only one book can do that. Only one book can do that. It's the book of God's Word. And it is painful when it convicts. It's a sword. But this pain is a good thing. And it's what starts life. If you've broken your ankle, you need to feel pain 
Because it tells you something is wrong and you need to have it fixed. A lack of pain is actually a lack of mercy. Because you would never know something is wrong. God's Word mercifully pierces His people so that they may repent and then be restored. And it's sort of a paradox in the soul that we want this. Bring us the book and we want this pain because we want to know God. I knew a pastor once when I was younger who used to say, it hurts so good. And this restoration to God is based on the fact that this God who convicts us of sin has also given us great hope to return to Him. Sorrow is not the end all of preaching. That would be a very sad affair to just gather just to feel sorrowful. Just to see how ugly and blemished we are and guilty before God. The goal of preaching when God raises up speakers is not just to keep the people in gloom. It leads to something else. It leads to repentance. And then it leads to this next thing. This final element of revival by the Word. Look at the pastoral words of Ezra in verse 10. Look at verse 10. After this weeping, then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat. And drink the sweet wine. And send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. The final component of a genuine revival is joy from the Word. Joy from the Word. I want to be careful as I phrase that. Ezra tells them, No longer to grieve, but to be strong in the joy of the Lord. Now this is, of course, joy of the Lord. Not joy from the Word. That's not what he says there. But I want to make a connection that it has to do with what the Word was proclaiming to them. Because that's how they encountered this God. Joy comes from the Lord. And it's, of course, a fruit of the Spirit. But it's a joy from the Word because the Word makes the reason for this joy plain to us. Keep in mind that this is from Ezra the expositor. He's the one who's been studying this book. And he has good news for them. The encouragement that he gives them is that just as a careful understanding of the Word appropriately brings sorrow so a careful understanding of the Word also appropriately calls for joy. It's a a really cool concept that, yes, you understood the Word and you're sorrowful and it's fitting. Here's something else that you should understand about the Word. You should also be joyful if you're repenting. And notice that the connection to the Word and their joy is made in verse 12. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. They can rejoice because they understood 
the same Scriptures that had pierced them also had plenty to console them. For in the same book of the law is revealed that this God is full of compassion. Exodus 34 reveals His covenant name. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. I wonder what they thought when they heard that. Because they were thousands there. And they hear that God keeps love for thousands. The cause for joy is God Himself. He Himself has had set His love upon His people and given them promises of restoration and salvation. And He Himself has joy in His covenant people. And that joy is what they're united to Him in should they repent. It's not just joy in the Lord. It's the joy of the Lord. And this is a balm to their souls. This is what gives life. Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I want to end this sort of review of revival by just giving a few points of application to ponder the work of the Lord in revival. Just a few things I thought of for myself that I just want to share with you as I study this. The first thing I thought of by way of application is that knowing that God loves bringing such revivals and that He can do it ought to cause us to repent of any unbelief that we may have regarding what God can do. That attitude of God isn't going to do that. That needs to disappear if we're to truly understand what God has done before. We need to make sure we pray for such a hunger of the Word in our day. For the proclamation of the Word. We need to pray for pastors to expound it. We need to pray for reverence and true worship and learning of the Word. Discipleship around the Word. We need to pray for the Spirit to bring conviction and repentance. And we need to pray ultimately for joy in the Lord. Because God can do that. He has done it. I know things will go from bad to worse. We know our Bibles, how society and the world is tending toward the dissolution of all things. But God loves His interrupted blessings. And God could still bring revival even as things are declining. Let's pray for that interruption. Let's pray that we could be a part of it. A second point of application. Let's not merely hope for revival by looking at the state of churches across our nation, even though we should do that. Uh, I thought of a caution there. Uh, Let's not forget to first look at ourselves in need of reviving. Heritage Valley Bible Church needs revival. We too need a greater understanding of the Word. We too have blemishes and sins and defects that we need addressed by the Lord. Remember when Jesus looked at the churches in Revelation and each one had different glaring sins He identified. We, we need to be examining ourselves and should be praying for that. We need more zeal for the Lord's work. So, 
pray for revival in our church. Pray that God would do great things in Fillmore. Let's give attention to the Word of God ourselves. A third and final application, because I, I keep thinking of the caution that comes with each of these. Don't just look at our church and think that it needs revival. The final appeal I want to have is think of you on the individual level, that you yourself need revival. Don't just think, oh, if only our church got this together and that together. Look at yourself before the mirror of God's Word. Consider the life that is still needed. Consider the areas you need to repent of. Come before the Word when you come to church and think first, how is it sitting with you? Go to the Word in your private devotions in your own life to hear God's voice and understand its meaning. Do the work of a student. Know that God is speaking. And not to be intellectual, not just to check a box. We discuss this a lot with some of the, the younger men in our church. Don't, don't just read the Bible because it's information, but what does God have for you there? What, are you, what is the interaction and the communion that's happening? Get behind the flat words on the page to the living God who is speaking. You and I need that powerful voice on a regular basis in our lives. We need our ideas challenged. We need our attitude checked. We need our sin exposed. We need our souls to be comforted in His joy. We need to know the Lord our God who gives life and who has so lovingly revealed Himself. And we need to be awakened still more and more to His glorious reality so that we grow to love Him more. Let's pray. Father, we do pray for a work of Your Holy Spirit. Lord, we want nothing else except what You've required. Lord, we want to to know Your Word. We want to know You. We want to worship in spirit and in truth. We want to call upon Your name in prayer. We want our fellowship to be centered around You. Lord, would You continually bless our church Would You help us to be set ablaze for Your mission? Would You help us to not um, be watered down and influenced so easily as we are exiles in this land, but help us to be set apart. Help us to be people who walk with You. Lord, we pray that You would bless the rest of our time and our fellowship as we talk, as we exercise our spiritual gifts with one another. That You would... um, Make it a time that we leave here strengthened and ready to come next week to hear your voice. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.